Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. On this show, we have been speaking to a number of critics of the Trump administration's policy towards Iran. Well, today we're doing something very different and speaking to a leading proponent. My guest, Michael Duran, is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., and previously held a number of senior positions inside the Bush administration, including serving as the senior director for the National Security Council. He joined me earlier for a wide-ranging conversation about U.S. policy towards Iran. Michael Duran, thank you for joining me. Uh, you are someone who is very immersed in the issue of Iran. You have extensive experience in government and national security policy. And you're also on a very different side of the political, of the political spectrum. So I really appreciate this opportunity uh, to speak to you. Let me ask you uh, to lay out for us the case for the Trump administration's current policy on Iran. Someone like me looks at the Iran nuclear deal and sees something that was working, something that the IAEA and the Pentagon say that Iran was adhering to. Why do you think it was wise for Trump to withdraw from the deal, to reimpose sanctions, and now we even get to the point where the U.S. has just assassinated a top Iranian leader, Qasem Soleimani? Well, uh, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity to uh, uh, have a um, cross-partisan dialogue, uh, something that uh, you said to me is uh, sorely lacking. So uh, if we can uh, just talk for the next 20, 30 minutes uh, without screaming at each other, I think we will have uh, um, contributed to the national conversation. Um, with respect to Iran, uh, I never uh, believed that the um, Iranian nuclear deal uh, was going to achieve any of its stated goals. And, and when I say I, uh, I think just about everyone on the right, every Republican candidate for president in 2016, with the, um, I think, sole exception of Rand Paul, um, said that the, that the nuclear deal needed to be scrapped. And some of them, like Scott Walker, said it had to be scrapped on day one. Um, and, and that's because uh, on the Republican side, we never believed that it was actually going to stop Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. In fact, we believed that it, um, that it simply gave Iran a legitimate path to acquire a nuclear weapon and strengthened it along the way. Uh, the, other, the other problem with the, with the nuclear deal uh, was that it also um, was not as it was billed by the Obama administration. The Obama administration billed it as a narrow arms control agreement. Uh, they said it had nothing to do whatsoever with uh, Iran's behavior in the region, uh, its uh, proliferation of militias across the Arab world and the distribution to those militias of precision-guided weaponry. Uh, with the with the stated intention of undermining the American security system in the region and undermining American allies and destroying Israel and so on. Um, so for me, it's a little bit ironic now uh, to hear former Obama administration officials saying that uh, the problem with Trump leaving the JCPOA is it created a conflict with Iran in the region. Uh, they always said that the JCPOA had nothing to do with the region. Of course, I never believed them when they said that. They weren't telling the truth. They, they conceived of the JCPOA um, as a uh, realignment 
as the as the major instrument for a, a, a regional realignment with Iran. Um, I wrote article after article during the negotiations of the JCPOA, warning that Obama was realigning with Iran, uh, that he was basically partnering uh, um, tacitly with Iran in Iraq, uh, in Syria, and in Lebanon. And we're seeing the consequences of that right now. I mean, we have these uh, rebellions that are going on, these protests in Iraq and Lebanon, um, which are basically protests against the Iranian order that the JCPOA helped to establish. Um, in Iraq, it, it's explicit. The protesters are out in the street fighting against Qasem Soleimani's militias, and they're saying that openly. In Lebanon, it's a little bit, uh, the, the anti-Iranian component um, is a little less obvious because they're, the, the protesters, as they are in Iraq, are protesting simply against a corrupt system uh, and not, not uh, in general and not specifically against um, Iran. But Iran is a major, uh, the major guarantor of the corrupt system in, in Lebanon. Okay, I heard a lot of points there. So let me outline some of them and, and give you a rebuttal and then ask for your response. So first of all, you assert, I think, as you presume that Iran has had a nuclear weapons program, but even U.S. intelligence uh, back in 2007 concluded that Iran halted what, what was described as Iran's nuclear weapons program, although I think based on other histories, people like Gareth Porter have documented that Iran never has even had a serious, weapons nuclear, a, a serious nuclear weapons program. But even assuming that it did, even U.S. intelligence concluded that Iran halted it back in 2003. So is there something there that, that they got wrong? Oh, sure. Yeah. And the, um, the, the nuclear archive that the Israelis spirited out of Tehran uh, shows that that assumption from the, uh, from the NIE w was itself erroneous, that uh, the, the documents the Israelis took out show that they were, uh, the, the Iranians were far, much farther along in their weaponization program uh, than anyone ever realized. And it also shows not just that they um, uh, that they didn't. Uh, it also shows they didn't stop the weaponization. Uh, they just they just pushed it further underground. Um, so wait, wait. I, no, sorry, sorry. If I could just. Uh, yeah. There's no. Um, but the NIE itself didn't say that they had stopped their weapons program. It said that they had stopped their weaponization. That they had halted their weaponization uh, re research. Um, it presented it in a very um, uh, politicized fashion. Uh, I think uh, not simply to be political, but they were the, the intelligence community felt um, that it had been um, uh, taken advantage of in the 2001 NIE on Iraq, and it it didn't want uh, it didn't want uh, Bush to be able to take their findings in 2007 and use it in a way that they didn't want. And so they presented it in the most um, kind of uh, explosive way possible. It had a much bigger impact on politics than it should have. But it was reaffirmed again in 2012 under a different administration. So obviously that carried over from the Bush administration intelligence agencies to the Obama administration intelligence agencies. And also, but look, you cited the 
the nuclear documents, uh, supposed nuclear documents cited, cited by Israel, but those have been called under question. They were leaked to the MEK, uh, a terrorist group. Uh, there were accusations that there were forgeries in these documents. On the face of it, the idea that Iran would, can, would keep de details of a nuclear program inside a relatively uh, unsecure warehouse inside Tehran, just uh, on, on the face of it, that seems pretty absurd. Well, they, they mothballed certain aspects of it. Why, why absurd? They, what are they going to do with it? They, uh, they clearly were afraid in 2003 when, when, when the U.S. invaded Iraq that they might be on the agenda. Uh, they transformed their program um, in, order to, uh, in, in order to prevent an American strike. And what they did, uh, I mean, to me, it's quite obvious. What they did is they just hid it in plain sight. They started declaring aspects of the program that could be plausibly presented as not part of a weapons program. Um, but it doesn't make sense. I mean, the, the Fordo facility, for example, is an, uh, a fortified underground bunker for enriching uranium for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's uh, making a nuclear weapon. There's no reason why um, a country that is, that is building um, a civil nuclear program, which is what Iran always claimed it was doing, um, would have such a bunker. So to, to, to me, you just need to look at the, at the scale of enrichment, the, the form in which they're doing it, uh, and so on, and it's obvious that they're not doing what they're saying they're doing. But Fordo, that was inspected by the IAEA, uh, was it not? Fordo, the Fordo was it was was uh, was a secret that they kept, and it was again the, the, it was the MEK that uh, that discovered it, passed it to you to to Western intelligence. Uh, but there's no. There's there's no plausible reason to have such a facility other than to uh, uh, under, other than to protect it for uh, from a strike. All right, let me let me read you the 2007 assessment uh, from uh, from the U.S. government. It says we judge with high confidence that in the fall of 2003, Tehran halted its nuclear weapons program. We also assess with moderate to high confidence that Tehran, at a minimum, is keeping open the option to develop nuclear weapons. So that seems pretty conclusive. They say that Tehran has halted its nuclear weapons program no, I, I think, back in 2003. Uh, um, I, don't have, it. I don't have the text in front of me. As I remember it, there was a footnote um, to that first sentence, and then, and, and then they defined what they mean by halted their nuclear weapons program. And, and what they're saying is they, is they put aside the weaponization component of it. I'll read the footnote. For the purposes of this estimate by nuclear weapons program, we mean Iran's nuclear weapon design and weaponization work and covert uranium conversion related and uranium enrichment related work. We do not mean Iran's declared civil work related to uranium conversion and enrichment. Right. There you go. So, so it's, it's making clear that for the purposes of nuclear weapons, Iran has halted its program. Well, it, it, it's the it's 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 artificially divided, but they but they make it intellectually they make it clear they divided the uh, they divided the enrichment component and the uh, the things that could like I said plausibly be presented as part of a civil nuclear program they divided those up and the weaponization work and they put the weaponization work underground but also as I mentioned to you the Israeli uh, documents and other documents that have been the, that the IAEA has come into uh, um, has uh, 
uh, taken possession of, uh, show that the weaponization work itself did not end. It just um, uh, it, it ended in forms that could be easily detectable by Western intelligence from satellite intelligence and so forth. The organization that did the weaponization still exists and is still doing research related to it. Well, it's my understanding, again, when it comes to those Israeli documents, that those have been determined by experts, including at the IAEA, to be fraudulent. And again, I've relied here extensively on the work of Gareth Porter. Who well, the, guy, the guy that I, look, not, neither, neither you nor I, I think, are, are nuclear experts, so we have to rely on others. Agreed, yeah. The guy that, the guy that I look to is David Albright of uh, um, The Good ISIS. Uh, I think he's the most uh, respected nuclear uh, expert in the in the country, and uh, and 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 he has uh, extensive reports on on um, one article in particular that had a big impact on me on um, uh, what we learned from the uh, trove of documents that the Israelis took out. Um, so I would, uh, you know, um, I, I think you and I can go back and forth on this, but ultimately we're going to be relying on experts. Fair enough. So I would, uh, I direct your readers to, um, uh, to the, to the work that, uh, David Albright has done. Okay. So, you know, fair enough. And I will, uh, cite underneath the, this, the, the show notes here, uh, the experts that I've consulted, because we can definitely agree that. Uh, I am not a nuclear expert by any means. So let's move on to other issues that you've raised. Before we do, can I make uh, just one one more point on this? Yeah. Um, I think that there's no plausible way to look at the totality of what Iran has done, um, uh, and, you know, whether it's the Fordo facility or the, uh, the different forms of... Uh, um, enrichment, the size of the program, the statements it's made, and so on, and have any um, have any uh, notion of what they're doing other than to build the nuclear weapons. So much of what they've done is is in, in, in also in terms of their missile program is to present a plausible threat to the to the international community that they are a nuclear um, threshold country, a country on the threshold of a nuclear of a nuclear weapon. So regardless of any particular intelligence estimate, I think the only prudent thing that an American leader can assume is that is that this is a country hell-bent on nuclear weapons. And if you look at the if you look at the at the damage to their economy as a result of the sanctions that they have uh, uh, that have been inflicted on them because of this program You'll you see the, the enormous sacrifices that they are willing to make in order to get that weapon. Okay, and what I see is an Iran that wants the world to know that it has the capability to enrich, uh, but that has not actually actively pursued the program as affirmed by U.S. intelligence. And the fact that, look, for the years preceding the Iran nuclear deal, Iran could have enriched uranium at 20 percent, uh, which would be the threshold towards making a nuclear weapon, but it didn't. They weren't even enriching at the levels that would be required to go towards a nuclear weapon. They, 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 they're, they're very clever at that. The, the 20% um, enrichment is absolutely useless for anything but weaponization. Uh, it's not enough to weaponize, but, it, but you can move from 20% to the necessary percentage to weaponize um, much quicker than- And they weren't even at that level. They weren't no, even at they, that level. No, but, they, but, they, but they developed the capability to get there so that, the, so that they put additional pressure on the international community 
it is a it's it's a way of pressuring the 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 international community. Why do they want to play this game? I I, I mean you're 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 saying because they haven't gotten a weapon, they don't want to get a weapon. And 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 I think why do we want this? Why do we want this regime of all regimes to be anywhere near having the capability to build a weapon? Well, I think we don't want anyone to have nuclear weapons. And that's why, for example, Iran has been receptive to proposals for a nuclear-free Middle East, which would mean abolishing uh, Israel's nuclear weapons. But it's the U.S. that stood in the way of that. The Obama administration has even vetoed or, or uh, uh, rejected proposals to that effect. So I think if we're serious about uh, having a nuclear-free Middle East, we should apply that to everybody, not just to Iran, but to Israel as well. I'm worried about our enemies. <laughs> All right. So let's move on, though, to the second element you raised, which is about Iran's behavior in the, in the region. For example, you say that Obama realigned with Iran. But yet I look at uh, Obama, and yes, he did make this nuclear deal with Iran, but that was after imposing uh, very crippling sanctions that didn't work. And I think the fact that those didn't work is what led uh, Obama to make this deal. And meanwhile, you know, Obama greenlit the Saudi war on Yemen, uh, which ended up bringing Iran in, although I don't think Iran was there at the beginning. Iran certainly would not be happy about that and would not see the Saudi war on Yemen as an alignment between uh, Obama and Iran. And also, you, you say that Obama was aligned with Iran in Syria. I don't understand that when given that Iran was fighting to defend the government that the Obama administration was trying to overthrow with Timber Sycamore, this multi-billion dollar CIA program to arm insurgents inside Syria, along with people like Saudi Arabia and Turkey and Qatar. Uh, and Iran was fighting against all the forces that the Obama administration was aligned with. Um, okay, so you, there's, there's, a, there's a lot there. Um, First of all, um, why don't we start with Syria? I think that's the I think that's the most obvious case. Um, Obama sent letters to Khamenei, uh, in which he told uh, Khamenei that uh, uh, he would not um, do anything to topple the Syrian regime. Um, and if you if you watch if you followed it closely, um, these programs. To support the Syrian opposition, uh, they were uh, they were more the the CIA program was more a program of kind of keeping tabs on what everyone uh, on what everyone else was doing rather than actually trying to arm train and equip people that would bring down um, the Syrian government. Um, the, Michael, they sent they sent they sent anti tank missiles. I'll give you. I'll give they you. They sent anti tank missiles and they sent uh, weapons from Libya. I'll give you some proof of, uh, of what I said. Um, number one uh, is there was never any coordination between the military, uh, the, the U.S. military activities in Syria and the CIA activities. They were totally d disconnected. So if we were serious about, and you, and you remember there was the, there was the, the, the multi-million dollar uh, hundreds of millions of dollars devoted to uh, on, on the DOD side to building up the Syrian opposition, which fielded uh, a handful of, of Syrian soldiers in the end, because they actually made them all sign, literally sign a declaration that they wouldn't do anything to work against the Assad regime. 
Um, and uh, on the uh, on the on the CIA side, um, I don't I don't know what it was originally conceived of in the earliest days, but if you, for me, the 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 test is really in uh, July to September, July to November 2015, um, and that's. Uh, that's when the Iranians and the Russians, after the conclusion of the JCPOA, the Iranians and the Russians, um, Qasem Soleimani goes to Moscow in July of 2015 or early August, can't remember the exact date, um, and they put together this alliance designed to uh, prop up Assad. They made a major military escalation on the ground. Um, and the Obama administration, a, a major military escalation on the ground that began with Russian bombing of CIA uh, trained and equipped uh, um, organizations um, in northern Syria. And we did nothing. We did nothing. We did worse than nothing. We began to put pressure on the, Sir on the, on the Turks to close down the border with Syria. So we were actually tacit partners with the Russians and the Iranians as they carried out the most horrendous human rights abuses and reimposed the uh, Assad government on Aleppo, among other places. Okay, but meanwhile, as John Kerry admitted in leaked audio to uh, Syrian opposition activists, uh, Russia intervened after the US was watching ISIS march on Damascus and Kerry even said, that the reason Russia intervened is because they were worried about a, quote, Daesh government, an ISIS government. The reason Russia came in is because ISIL was getting stronger. Daesh was threatening the possibility of going to Damascus and so forth. And that's why Russia came in, because they didn't want a Daesh government. And they supported Assad. And, and, uh, and we know that this this was growing. We were watching. We saw that that Daesh was growing in strength, and we thought Assad was threatened. Uh, we thought, however, we could probably manage. Uh, you know that Assad might then negotiate. Instead of negotiating, you got Assad. Now you got the Putin to support him. It was, and so it was the Russian intervention to prevent that from happening, and because that was the beneficiary of this proxy war that we were fueling. And look, on the issue of the uh, contradiction between CIA, the CIA program and the Pentagon, I think you're, I agree with that, but the explanation was given in a article by Seymour Hersh in the London Review of Books, where he basically, he, he reported I have, that the- I have to stop you right there, I'm sorry to be rude. I, I, I know we're gonna have a, my, our, our goal here is to have a, um, um, a, a a very civil um, cross-partisan conversation. <laughs> yeah. But I can't take seriously any argument that begins with in an article by Seymour Hersh. Okay. Well, we we disagree on that one. But but okay. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. He had he he, he to me is uh, one of the most uh, accomplished and legendary journalists um, of the last you know. Uh, up of the last half century. I mean, to me, he's a legend. So I don't know what to tell you there, but you I'll know, just tell. I'll, I'll tell you what he reported. Seymour Hersh is a great uh, is a great example that of the old adage that even a broken clock is right twice a day. I didn't bring you on to to debate uh, 
the the merits of Seymour Hirsch, though he's someone Although, who I. Okay, but but listen, <laughs> but 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 what what is undeniable is that Seymour Hirsch reported on, and this has been confirmed, a document from the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2012, which warned, and I'll quote it for you. It says it's talking about Syria. If the situation unravels, there is the possibility of establishing a declared or undeclared Salafist principality in eastern Syria. And this is exactly what the supporting powers to the opposition, which includes the U.S., want in order to isolate the Syrian regime, which is considered the strategic depth of the Shia expansion. Uh, the, the de- and it goes on to basically warn, as it does there, that, that, it, that the powers that the, op- that the U.S. and its allies were supporting were going to lead to the declaration of a Salafist principality, which means al-Qaeda or ISIS, which, which were, I think you would agree, the strongest fighting forces against the Syrian government, who Iran and Russia were trying to, to and were trying to defend, and so this is where, look, the point of Hirsch's piece is that the Pentagon, after seeing this internal assessment in 2012, the pen, people in the Pentagon started diverging from what was going on at the CIA, and that there was actually a clash between the two. But ultimately, the CIA program did play a major role because there were anti-tank missiles delivered. To, uh, to the opposition, which ended up in the hands of groups like Al-Qaeda, and that did play a very decisive role. So yes, there was some alchemy, there was some contradiction, but the fact that there was a program in the U.S. that was very decisive in helping the opposition, the insurgents inside Syria. Well, uh, I go back to what I said. Uh, from in November, if you take a snapshot of what the United States is doing, in November of 2015, which is when the Russians are and the Iranians have made an, a military alliance, the Russians are coming in with uh, air power, which is more powerful than anything that anyone has on the ground, um, and the Iranians are providing the ground troops together with you know, Isra- uh, Iranian-created militias and Hezbollah are the major ground troops, and including a significant number of Iranian soldiers, and the United States and the United States took positions. Um, that facilitated the reimposition of Assad's rule by that coalition. And at the same time, the president of the United States is communicating with the Iranian regime and telling it it won't harm a hair on Assad's head. I, 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 don't, know what, um, um, I don't know what constitutes greater proof of an alignment with Iran than that, Iran and Russia. Also coming out hard on the Turks at the same time, who were the the major state actor that was interested in in blocking that coalition at that time. The, what, there's what, no doubt. If I, sorry, if I can make one more point. Please. Yeah. The 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 there is no doubt that the Obama administration had in its head a, a notion that somehow Iran and Russia could be um, effective partners against ISIS. I think that this was. Um, one of the actual strategic concepts that the that the uh, that President Obama had in his mind, he basically said it openly, uh, not in so many words, uh, but that the number one threat to the United States in the region was not Iran, it was ISIS and radical Sunni radicalism, and that he was trying to create a, a system in the region whereby we could work together with the Russians and the Iranians to defeat ISIS. I regard Russian and Iranian counterterrorism in quotation marks as a major cause of the rise of ISIS in, 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 in the region. So I think that that whole notion 
that Russia and Iran are somehow a, um, a bulwark against Sunni radicalism is crazy. How are Russia and Iran responsible for the rise of ISIS when they're the ones who were decisive in defeating them uh, inside Syria? Uh, Iran and Hezbollah also defeated ISIS, stopped ISIS from coming into Lebanon. And of course, Iran was decisive, including Qasem Soleimani, in defeating ISIS inside Iraq. And ISIS, of course, which arose from the regime change war that the U.S. launched in Iraq. Oh, no, this is a total, this is a point where you and I totally diverge uh, completely. So uh, take Iraq, for example. Um, the United States, after the Sunni awakening, uh, and the United States drove um, uh, al-Qaeda uh, in Iraq, out of, out of Iraq, basically, or drove it, uh, degraded it uh, significantly. The U.S. was playing a role in Iraqi politics of being a kind of mediator uh, between the Sunni Arab uh, middle center in, in Iraq and, the, and Baghdad. Under the pullout by Obama, uh, we got a, an, an Iranian-dominated network in Baghdad lording it over the Sunnis. Uh, uh, in the uh, in the, the Sunni Arabs in the middle of the country, uh, and the uh, the Iranian policies, backed by the militias that uh, that Qasem Soleimani was setting up, created a complete power vacuum in the in the in the Sunni Arab areas. So that if you were a Sunni Arab uh, uh, man of young man of military age. In, in, in Iraq, or even just a Sunni Arab, uh, you were, your choice was accept, accept ISIS rule or be subjected to the tender mercies of the, uh, the pro-Iranian militias that we did nothing to, to prevent uh, uh, Qasem Soleimani from, uh, from building up. And that's the vacuum, that's the political vacuum in, 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 in Iraq uh, into which ISIS moved. In Syria, look at look at look at the battle uh, look at the battle for Homs look at the battle for Aleppo uh, look at uh, look look at any major uh, uh, look at what's going on today while we're talking in Idlib look the look at the Russians and the uh, Assad uh, regime dropping barrel bombs on civilians in Idlib that's not that's Russian you you we can if you watch what's happening right now you see. Russian and Iranian counterterrorism, again in quotation marks, um, you know, in spades. All that they, they didn't defeat ISIS. They drove they drove the civilians out of the areas in which the opposition was active, and that means all opposition, not simply Sunni radical uh, uh, ra radical opposition. And they're now engaging in uh, in ethnic cleansing and repopulating those areas with uh, with, with populations that are going to be amenable or at least you know uh, and, and not hostile to the to the regime. Uh, I don't see I mean, it. We the United States defeated ISIS in in in, in Raqqa. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't the Russians and it wasn't and 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 it wasn't the Iranians. Their capital, their center of their activities was 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 Raqqa, and we're the ones who did that. We have we don't have Qasem Soleimani to thank for anything, and we don't have the Russians or the Iranians to thank for anything. What you have, that what they have, we, we what what we need to hold them responsible for, are the 
10 to 12 million people who have been uprooted in Syria and the 500,000 to a million who have been murdered. Well, okay. Look, there's a lot there and we've taken now a detour into Syria. I'll just say that with Idlib, look, of course, there is a lot of suffering going on there, going on now. People are dying under Russian and Syrian bombs. But what is Idlib? Idlib is, according to Brett McGurk, the former U.S. special envoy to the anti-ISIS coalition, he called it the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11. Look, Idlib province is the largest al-Qaeda safe haven since 9-11, tied directly to Ayman al-Sahiri. This is a huge problem. It's been a problem for some time. We have shown the spotlight, the international spotlight on ISIS. Um, we've been very focused on Al-Qaeda in Idlib province. Leaders of Al-Qaeda that make their way to Idlib province often do not make their way out of there. But we have to ask a question, why and how is Ayman al-Zawahiri's deputy finding his way to Idlib province? Why is this happening? How are they getting there? They're not paratroopers. So, and the approach, I obviously will not talk about anything the U.S. government has done in certain parts of Syria on this problem, but the approach by some of our partners to send in tens of thousands of, uh, tens of, thousands of tons of, of weapons and looking the other way as these foreign fighters come into Syria may not have been the best approach. And uh, Al-Qaeda has taken full advantage of it. And Idlib now is a huge problem. It is an Al-Qaeda safe haven right on the border of Turkey. And why does it even exist? It exists because, so, it, 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 hold on Michael, hold on. It exists because the U.S. and its allies, including Turkey, uh, gave support to uh, groups and the support that the U.S. provided, it, it's, all, it's openly acknowledged now that the people who benefited especially were the far-right insurgents, uh, in, in, including groups with ties to Al-Qaeda, including with groups, groups that right now control Idlib. So we, are, we have a huge role in this unfortunate reality that exists now where you have a, uh, a province controlled by Al-Qaeda. And in terms of what, what is to be done, there have been attempts at, at ceasefires and negotiations. Those haven't worked. A, a sovereign state, whether you like it or not, I think has the right to defend itself. And I don't think the U.S. would sit kindly if there was a uh, province, if there was a big state controlled by Al-Qaeda. I don't think that there was a, ever a danger of Syria being controlled by, uh, by al-Qaeda. And look, a state has a right to defend itself. Um, there, a state does not have a right to do what the Russians and the Iranians are doing right now and Assad are doing right now, which is, which is dropping barrel bombs on bakeries from uh, helicopters. I, on my Twitter feed, I don't, I, uh, almost a day doesn't go by that I don't, uh, that I don't post something about Idlib. Um, I, uh, it, 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 it pains me greatly that the United States and Turkey have not worked together to impose a no-fly zone over Idlib so that the Russians and the Iranians can't do what they're doing. For Brett McGurk to simply call Idlib a hub of al-Qaeda activity is a, uh, uh, is a um, grotesque. It's really, it's obscene. Did the there U.S. Are, have the, did the, US are, have the right to bomb? There did are the US three million... There are there are three million civilian there there are three million civilians there. There are hundreds of thousands of refugees there. You can look at the video clips and you can see who these people are, who are being slaughtered day in and day out by the Russians and the Iranians. The, the, I, I can't believe that somebody um, with your commitments at the the Nation magazine would would defend that in any way, even obliquely. I 
any civil any killing of, of civilians, any war crime uh, should be uh, prosecuted and condemned. I'm concerned though with what our role is as the U.S. in fueling it. And if we are the ones who poured hundreds of millions, even billions of dollars into a proxy war that empowered Al-Qaeda, and Al-Qaeda is now controlling a province, I'm, I'm not sure what a sovereign government is supposed to do, especially given that we give ourselves the right to bomb uh, civilian areas. The, as you said, the U.S. bombed Raqqa, caused a huge amount of civilian damage and, and casualties. But you were, you were celebrating that. The U.S. did the same thing well, in Mosul. The I difference, though, the difference, is, the difference is that... The difference, never, is, the difference, Michael, I hold on. Michael, my, I never well, celebrated it. I, I, you, I never celebrated it. I never... Um, look, I, I, I didn't spend a day... Uh, I, I didn't spend a day uh, mourning the demise of, uh, of Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Um, and I was quite, uh, you know, quite content to see uh, bin Laden killed and Baghdadi killed. I have all... in Idlib, by the way, in Idlib, this Al Qaeda safe haven. So yeah, so he so he was in Idlib and 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 uh, and uh, and, uh, and Bin Laden was in Pakistan. I don't think we should be going bombing Pakistan. The 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 um, uh, uh, I have always criticized. I've been very consistent about this. That the conception that says the fight against uh, the counterterrorism fight against Sunni radicalism is the number one threat and everything else is subordinate to that is a horrendous doctrine because it doesn't look after American interests and it also turns areas like Idlib, I mean, the, the, the McGurk conception that you describe turns these areas, Sunni areas where there are, um, where there are some unsavory organizations at work, but also millions of civilians, it just turns them into kill zones. That's what's wrong. It's an absolutely immoral policy. And it's also, but it's also, in the end, in the end, it doesn't look after the national interest either. Look at these rebellions that are going on in Iraq and in Lebanon. One of the things that's so interesting to me about the, uh, uh, about the protests in Iraq is that the heart and soul of that protest in Iraq today is... Shiite young men. That's, that's where that's the beating heart of this protest. And they are standing up and risking their lives, by the way, very courageously against Iranian thugs that American policy helped to install in Iraq because of this counterterrorism doctrine. So it isn't simply that it turns Sunni areas into kill zones. It also empowered the worst elements in the, of the Iranian network all across the region elements that are not capable of creating a stable uh, order for the average person. All right, I've kept you way over time. So rather than going on and, and debating Iraq, and, and I will say it is true that there have been protests inside Iraq and they were repressed. I'm most concerned uh, as uh, someone who lives in the US with what our policies have been, because I think we're fundamentally, fundamentally responsible for the, our own governments conduct, not foreign governments, especially when it's our government that has been so decisive in causing this whole chaos, which I think really begins with the Iraq war. And on that note, Michael, Michael, in terms of our responsibility here, let me ask you if you think that we owe anything to Iran, given the, the history that goes, on, that goes beyond the last few years. But going back to the coup of 1953, when the CIA overthrows a democratic government that wanted to nationalize its own oil, it installs the Shah. 
During the 1980s, we uh, supported Saddam Hussein during his murderous war against Iran, supplying him with uh, weapons capabilities, supplying him with intelligence that directly fueled atrocities against Kurds and Iranians. Uh, and now the sanctions, the sanctions that, that are, are causing suffering amongst the civilians of Iran, denying them food and medicine. Do we owe Iran, oh, and by the way, also shooting down an Iranian passenger jet in 1988, killing 290 civilians as part of our support for Saddam Hussein. So do we owe Iran any obligations, any apologies, any reparations? And do you, is it possible for you to consider that Iran's response to the U.S. comes in that context, of a context of many years of being under siege by the U.S. and its allies, including Saddam Hussein? Uh, no, uh, I, I don't accept any of that. And I, I think if we were to go through it issue by issue, uh, Mossadegh, the, the downing of the, uh, the airliner uh, during the Iran-Iraq war, um, uh, the support for or the tilt toward uh, Saddam Hussein and all that, it would take us, uh, you know, we'd go on for uh, hours and hours and hours. Uh, uh, I'll just quickly say that uh, I don't believe that the CIA played nearly as big a role in the 1953 events as, um, as, as Kermit Roosevelt wanted people to believe uh, it did. I think there was a rebellion in Iran against Mossadegh, and, uh, uh, who, who was appointed by the Shah and whom the Shah had the right, according to the Iranian constitution, to, uh, um, uh, to remove. I think there's a tendency on the part of CIA agents like Kermit Roosevelt and people who see the world like yourself to attribute to the United States much greater agency for what goes on in the uh, in the Middle East than than it actually deserves. Now, that that doesn't absolve us for responsibility. We have lots of responsibilities and we need to behave responsibly, but it doesn't mean that we're responsible for the way that history has has unfolded. The people of the region also have a responsibility. I think the the great greatest responsibility that we have today is to help the people of Iran who want to get rid of this horrendous dictatorship that they uh, that is ruling over them. Like I say, this is not a this is not a normal dictatorship. This is a kind of regime. Is it worse than Saudi Arabia? Oh, by far, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. All right. No, well, yeah. no question about it. I, I, you're. I think you're in a minority uh, when it comes to that opinion. Saudi Arabia uh, is a. I, I'm not. I'm not in a minority on my side of the aisle. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Although, fair enough. although I have to say that some of your views, one of the upsetting things about the, about the current, um, uh, the, the, the current, um, circ the, the current situation is that, uh, is that some of your take on Saudi Arabia has bled over into the, into the Republican side as well. Um, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing my best. I'm, I'm doing my best to eradicate those heresies. Well, in Iran, uh, I see uh, elections, although I, I acknowledge that those are elections for a uh, select uh, bunch. It's not totally, obviously, free elections, but those elections do have a strong amount of, uh, of participation. I saw millions of people on the streets to mourn Qasem Soleimani. I don't think you could argue that they were all coerced. Uh, I see. Uh, I think you need to go on my Twitter feed. I will. Well, because, because I, I have been. Uh, I, I have been doing my best by showing social media clips that have gotten out of Iran to show the extent to which those uh, those uh, uh, thousands, hundreds of thousands in the street 
mourning Qasem Soleimani, were, were bussed in by the regime. Those are regime loyalists. The, the regime created a spectacle of support for Soleimani. Uh, and where, where, when, when Iranians have the ability to go out uh, and, uh, without being shot, they, uh, they have no problem torching uh, pictures of Qasem Soleimani. Uh, I think that if you want to get it, you, you, you can't argue, because they have these sham elections, um, you can't argue that there are democratic elements in this system. You only need to look at, there's a, there's a really heart-rending uh, clip that I posted on my Twitter feed of one of the mothers of the uh, victims in the downed uh, Ukrainian airliner um, who went to, his, to the funeral of her son, and the regime would not let her get near the grave uh, uh, because it was afraid that the that the the funerals of the um, of the victims would turn into political demonstrations, uh, and they have a regime minder, a woman there, uh, uh, telling this woman who's grieving for the loss of her son to keep her voice down, to shut up. Uh, and I shouldn't say shut up. She treats her, you know, with a little bit of delicacy. You know, please, mother. She says, please, mother, keep your voice down, keep your voice down, and so on. And you realize that even something as intimate and personal as the grieving of, a, uh, of the loss of a child is something that the regime feels that it can inject itself into. This is, not a, this is not a country in which there's freedom of speech or freedom of association. If you don't have those things, you don't have democracy. I agree, you don't have a democracy in Iran, but again, compared it to some of the people who we are allied with, including Saudi Arabia, where I don't think you could ever have the protests that we see inside Iran, because the country is just that much more uh, oppressive. It's not even a possibility to see thousands of people in the streets protesting the government, as we have seen in Iran uh, ju just in recent weeks. And you have people like Qasem Soleimani, who according to polls conducted by American institutions, had overwhelming popularity. And so I think this picture of Iran, and especially trying to argue that it's somehow more of a dictatorship than Saudi Arabia, I just, I don't think that that passed muster. Um, Michael, I do appreciate, I really appreciate you coming on. So I want to give you the last word and then we will wrap. My, my last word is that, um, is that the, the key issue isn't that Saudi Arabia is a dictatorship. It's the character of the regime, uh, uh, or, or that Saudi Arabia is more democratic or less democratic than, uh, than, than, than Iran. Uh, Iran is a particular kind of regime, which is dedicated to destroying the American order and American allies in the region. And it is creating these thuggish militias all across the Arab world and delivering to them precision-guided weaponry. And the results of that policy is what we saw in Syria, which is, as I mentioned, many millions killed, uh, may possibly, uh, I mean, uh, many millions uprooted, possibly a million killed. Uh, that is what Iran is responsible for. When you see the Russians dropping barrel bombs on civilians in Idlib today, that is Iranian counterterrorism. That is Qasem Soleimani. When you see all those people rising up in, uh, uh, in Iraq against the Iranians, that is this regime. So from an American national security point of view and from a humanitarian point of view, there is a huge difference between a country like Saudi Arabia, which is not a democracy by any stretch of the imagination. They don't have freedom of association and so on, absolutely. But there's a total, there's a huge distinction to be made to be made there. Saudi Arabia can sit comfortably under the American power umbrella and mind its own business. Iran is dedicated to, up to, uh, to, uh, to overturning the American order in the region, and it's willing to do it at, at any cost. That's the problem. It's an expansionist, hegemonic, 
Islamic extremist state. And that, that doesn't apply to any other country in the region. Okay, I want to make a final point. Saudi Arabia... I thought so, I got the last one. <laughs> I, I'm going to make a last point and I'll give you the, final, the actual final word. Saudi Arabia is, to me, an actual Islamic extremist state. It's not minding its own business. It's invaded Yemen, causing the world's worst humanitarian uh, catastrophe, mass starvation, uh, children dying, bombing of markets. We've all seen the, the horrible footage. So I don't think you can argue that about Saudi Arabia. And let me say about Iran, look, I wanted to raise this to you earlier. This is, you know, uh, earlier we talked about the internal U.S. assessments about Iran and its nuclear weapons program. Even, own, even the Pentagon's own assessments when it comes to Iran talk about its strategy in the world as being defensive. I'll quote it to you. It says, uh, from 2014, a Pentagon assessment, it says, quote, Iran's military doctrine is defensive, designed to deter an attack, survive an initial strike, retaliate against an aggressor, and force a diplomatic solution to hostilities. That's the Pentagon in 2014. I think that's accurate. So I'm wondering, Michael, what is the Pentagon missing that you can see here? Because again, from Iraq to Syria to Yemen, I see Iran responding to threats that we've created. And I will give you the actual final word, uh, word here. Uh, I think that's a reference to, uh, to Iran's regular military. Uh, this is not a, a reference to the Qasem Soleimani project, uh, which is uh, to take over countries like Iraq, to take over countries like Lebanon. Lebanon has uh, Hezbollah, which is a, which is part of the Quds Force, has uh, which is the Lebanese essentially the Lebanese wing of the Quds Force has a hundred thousand rockets and missiles directed at Israel, uh, which is upgrading to make them precision guided weaponry. So Hezbollah, a militia has a greater uh, uh, has gr a larger rocket and missile force than than the vast majority of countries in 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 the region that is not a defensive position uh, Yemen in Yemen the Iranians are building in 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 the form of the Houthis a Yemeni Hezbollah they're trying to create the same kind of force there historically Iran has no interest in Yemen whatsoever that is an expansionist hegemonic project. It's not a defensive project by any stretch of the imagination. Just because they're doing it asymmetrically doesn't mean it's defensive. I would make a distinction between asymmetric and defensive. And I'll just say Hezbollah was founded when? After Israel invaded Lebanon in the early 1980s, and it was founded as a response to an Israeli invasion and a huge threat to Lebanon. That is totally wrong. That's a false history. We'll have to tell We'll have to... Uh, we will have to uh, we will have to conquer this one um, at, at, at another time. Fair enough. But that is not they were building they were building Hezbollah before the Israelis in, invaded. They used the Israeli invasion as a justification for what they were doing anyway. They were organizing the Shiites. They were organizing the Shiites uh, before the Israelis ever went in. All right, Michael. Well, listen, we'll have to leave it there. Fittingly, on that point of disagreement, I really appreciate your time. Michael Duran. It was it was it was a lot of fun and to see just how how great the distance is between us. But at least we had the conversation. We did, and I really appreciate your time, Michael Duran, senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, former deputy assistant secretary of defense, and a former senior director of the National Security Council. Thanks very much. Thank you. I enjoyed it.